I have you loud and clear. <laughs> Hello. 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 Welcome. Welcome. <laughs> Science. And that is to say, physics, medicine, nature, or space, time, the brain, life, the universe. Happy New Year! This week, we're taking a look back at the science of 2017. From ghost-busting and false memories to bees playing football and how to get a fart out of a car, we've taken our pick of marvellous naked scientists' moments over the last year. I'm Izzy Clark. I'm Katie Haler. And this is The Naked Scientists. The Naked Scientists podcast is powered by UKfast.co.uk. First up, the post-Christmas slump can leave us feeling a little blue after all that festivity fades away. Thankfully, University College London's Professor Sophie Scott provided some light relief from the January blues this year, giving Christmas the lowdown on what makes us laugh. Yeah, well, it's a very interesting behaviour because if you ask uh, human adults about it, it's, it's something we like and we'll talk about. But we always, we'll say that we laugh at jokes and comedy and humour. But if you actually watch us, and this is done very nicely by Robert Provine, what you find is it's a completely social behaviour. It's something we do when we're with other people. Most of laughter occurs during conversations with other people. And even then, we're hardly ever laughing at jokes. We're laughing to show that we understand people or we agree with them or we you know, we, we know them, we like them, we're part of the same group as them. So... We're doing a huge amount of social aspects of our interaction. We're actually managing with laughter. But when I'm actually laughing, Sophie, what's going on physiologically? What's my body doing? Because it's quite a distinct thing, isn't it, laughter? Everyone can recognise what a laugh is. Exactly. And it's actually a very, very basic way of making a sound. So when you start laughing, what happens is the intercostal muscles and the diaphragm, which I'm using right now to produce a very finely controlled flow of air out through my larynx, and that's how I'm, how we all talk. You, instead of doing that, it, your, these muscles start to do very large single contractions, and that just squeezes air out of you. And you squeeze the air out under very high pressures, so you start making sounds you wouldn't normally make. But each one of those individuals, ha, ha, ha sounds, literally, is air just being pushed from you. You could, be, you could achieve the same end by jumping up and down on someone's ribcage. It's very, very basic. And that's probably why, you know, babies can do it from a very early age. There's nothing complex to it at all. It sounds very similar to coughing. It is extremely similar to coughing and also, of course, to crying, weeping. So it's, it's a very basic, very uncomplex way of making a sound. And something we don't understand is if there is a competition between talking and breathing and laughing, laughter will win. It, there's something about the motor control of it that overwhelms everything else. And that's why you can tell if someone's talking and they start laughing. It's absolutely unmissable in their voice. What about the ubiquity of laughter? Do we all do it? We do all do it. So laughter is found, um, you know, in terms of a, the universality of it, laughter has been... Um, seems to be a, a basic human emotion. We, you don't find cultures where people never laugh. You find cultures where people laugh more and laugh less. There are cultures where public laughter can be quite impolite, but people will still laugh in private and they'll still laugh in other situations. So it seems to be, as far as we can see, a genuinely universal emotion, though it can be socially quite variable how, you know, to any one extent within any one culture, how appropriate it is to laugh from minute to minute basis. Now, when you say that it's not just us, there are these other mammals that laugh, how do we know they're laughing and what do they laugh at? Um, the main thing that they seem to laugh at is very common with humans. It's tickling. Tickling is what gets rats laughing, orangutans laughing, gorillas and humans. But it's also play. 
and all mammals play when they're infants. It's a very important uh, mammalian behaviour. And Pankskep, who's done some very beautiful work on, on rat laughter, he first noticed this, this sound that actually when rats were playing with each other and he wondered if that was laughter and started tickling the rats to see if it made the same sound. But he says at its heart, laughter is an invitation to play. It's kind of putting the interaction onto a playful, unthreatening, enjoyable basis. And that's a very, very useful way of managing interactions for animals. And, and mammals are very often highly social, so it matters to them. Is uh, the ability to have a sense of humour universally represented amongst humans and, and also the ability to laugh in this way amongst mammals? One thing that I would be clear is that we you do need to... Um, distinguish humour from laughter because as far as we know all humans to one extent or another will show laughter laughter is a you know is, is a very very common behaviour although with the proviso it can go wrong in some psychiatric conditions but that's not the same as everybody having the same kind or use of humour and humour varies really widely across even within a culture you know based on how old you are you'll find different stuff funny and even all sorts of other stuff influences that so what you find is that humour is incredibly variable and complex and plastic and then our behaviour to it which is often laughter can actually be very very familiar. So is there a sort of humour centre in the brain which that can then activate um, or be activated by things like the tickling centre so if I tickle you and you laugh that will also elicit the same reaction as if I tickle you with a joke and you laugh. It seems not to. So what people have put people into scanners and they've tickled them. And um, what they found is that tickling laughter is associated with increased activation in the hypothalamus, which is quite an old part. You know, it's a tiny part of the brain involved in hormone release. And in contrast, if you scan people while they're listening to jokes, what you essentially get is the language system working a way to help you understand what the jokes are. So they do seem to be quite distinct. You can, that we've definitely got a hallmark of brain activation that seems to be associated with tickling, and it's different from understanding a joke. Sophie Scott there from UCL. Go on, Katie, what's your best joke? Well, this isn't mine, actually. This is from the forum. So we've got our listeners to thank for this. Are you ready? Always. Why don't ants get sick? I don't know. Why don't ants get sick? Because they have tiny antibodies. Ah. <laughs> That's really awful. That's really bad. <laughs> Thank you to whoever posted that on the forum. That, no, that was really awful. Homework for you, Katie, is better jokes for 2018. Well, all right then. Can you do any better? Um, okay. So Gold walks into a bar and is completely drunk and the bartender shouts, Hey, you, get out of here. Oh, that was so poor. Okay, well, let's move quickly on then. Early 2017 saw a few creatures remarkably adept to the beautiful game. Using sugary treats, scientists managed to convince bees to kick a ball about. Ricky Navani found out why from Clint Perry from Queen Mary University in London. The biggest finding, or one of the biggest findings, is that bees were able to learn this very unnatural task. Uh, normally bees, uh, in nature, they move into flowers. They don't really manipulate them to any uh, complex degree. They just push forward into flowers to find uh, uh, the nectar or the pollen. Here we train them to actually roll a ball into a specific region to gain a reward, uh, sugar water, to access to sugar water. They were able to learn this socially. Uh, in the first experiment, we used a plastic dummy bee to push 
the ball into the center and have the bees watch this, observe this demonstration. And they were able to pick it up. All the bees trained were able to pick this up. So we were then interested in what about this social learning was important for them. So in a second experiment, we trained them in a, a variety of manners. One, they observed a live bee. Uh, demonstrating how to roll the ball into the hole uh, to gain reward. And in another situation, we used a magnet underneath the platform to move the ball. So they didn't see anything or anyone moving the ball, but just the ball moving itself. The bees who saw the live demonstration solved the task much more quickly than bees who saw just the uh, magnet moved ball, but just the ball moving on its own was enough uh, for the bees to learn. But actually they pick up on that a lot faster if they see another bee doing that, is that correct? That's right, and this was the purpose of the second experiment. Bees didn't simply copy what they saw, but they actually improved upon what they observed, uh, the strategy that they saw. So. In experiment two, the live demonstrators always moved the furthest ball from the center into the center. And they had three possibilities, one that was seven centimeters away, one that was five, and one that was two. And the live demonstrators always moved the furthest ball. And that's what the observers saw each time during the uh, training sessions. But during the tests, the observers moved the closest ball into the center and therefore uh, improved upon the strategy that they saw and didn't simply copy what they observed. Wow, that's really quite a unbelievable. Sorry, that was terrible. <laughs> what I was going to say is it is quite impressive, all jokes aside, that you guys didn't demonstrate this to the bees at all. They kind of naturally worked out that they could move one of the closer balls in and have a much more efficient solution to this problem. Right. And an important point of that is that we ran controls to make sure that they weren't using simpler mechanisms. One being just knowing that they weren't paying attention to the position of the ball. They moved the closest ball into the center. But also, we changed the color of the closest ball to black instead of yellow, which is what they saw during the training sessions. And they still moved that black ball, the closest ball, in the vast majority of, of tests. And this is the first time that that kind of behaviour has been studied extensively. As, yeah, as far as we know, yes. So bees, naturally, compared to loads of other animals that we've observed, have tiny brains. Would you necessarily expect bees to be capable of this kind of thing? And what's the significance of studying this kind of behaviour in bees as opposed to larger animals? Most of us, uh, when we see bees or insects of any type, we, uh, we look at those as genetically pre-programmed unthinking machines and oftentimes as pests and whatnot. But there's no real behavior that's been shown to require a large brain. Many, many, I mean, decades of, of research has shown that uh, uh, bees and other insects can learn, can solve complex tasks, and can navigate complex environments. And I guess what's important to note is uh, why we're studying this in, in insects is that not only do, I guess it's the combination of bees having cognitive abilities as well as very small brains in order to access and to study. So we can record from and study uh, individual neurons within the bee brain at the same time looking at the entire brain. Whereas larger animals, there's just so many neurons and so much stuff there that it's, it's hard to get at with the tools we have available today. Clint Perry from Queen Mary University of London. Are you a football fan, Katie? It's not really up my street, to be honest, but if bees were playing, I think I'd probably watch it avidly. 
Now, as we're sitting in this comfy studio, thousands of pieces of space junk are in orbit around the Earth. The Naked Scientists caught up with artists Kath Lakuta and Nick Ryan earlier in the year, who've attempted to give a voice to these pieces of junk with videos, social media and even music. Guys, i got to tell you, I think my spank has escaped. I was researching another project and I came across this story of an astronaut, Piers Sellers, dropping his spatula in space in 2006. And it became a bit of space junk and was careening around the Earth at 17,500 miles per hour. And I found this image just really provocative, a very mundane kitchen instrument hurtling around the Earth. And that uh, image made me think, wow, what is this space debris? And so I read up a little bit more and discovered in 1965 that another astronaut had dropped his glove in space. And that too, for me, was just a very, very strong image, quite a sad image, you know, a glove just like orbiting around the Earth on its own. And I guess that's what initially made me interested and and curious about what was this world of space debris that I knew nothing about. And pretty quickly after that, I discovered that it represented this very significant crisis and that there was actually 100 million bits of junk circling our Earth. When I first started discussing this hidden world with Nick, Nick Ryan, who's a sound artist, Nick was instantly fascinated with how this space junk was silent in how could he give voice to this junk. And so he developed an instrument, an electromechanical instrument, that's about one and a half metres long. It's made of aluminium and it turns and into this long aluminium cylinder a thousand grooves of sound and every time a bit of space junk flies above where the instrument is a little stylus hooks into one of those grooves and plays a sound the different sounds depending on the size of the junk that will determine the kind of tone that you're hearing so a very small bit of junk has a very high pitch and some of the really enormous bits of junk. There's a piece of space junk called Envysat that's the size of a London bus. And if a very big bit of junk passes overhead, then you hear a very kind of deep tone. It's in potential of all this space junk is so incredibly destructive. And yet some of it is extraordinarily beautiful. And some of it has the, you know, the most wonderful stories behind them. A lot of the junk that's up there, early satellites that were part of the very, very beginning of the space race in the early 50s. It's like there's a floating museum of our past space exploration travelling above us. But at the same time, these beautiful items in many ways are now threatening to also destroy us. You heard from Kath Lakuta there. But Izzy, as our resident physicist, why is space junk so dangerous? 
Well, for one thing, it could potentially cause a collision with a satellite, for example. And there's lots of work going into retrieving things in space so as not to make more space debris. And you can find out more about this by taking a listen to the full episode called A Crash Course in Space Junk, which is on our website, thenakedscientist.com, or just find it on your favourite podcast app. Over the next 10 years or so, there's predictions that up to a billion genomes sequenced, and most of these are going to be sequenced in the, in the healthcare setting. In this month's Naked Genetics, we find out how advances in genomics are shaping the future of healthcare, from gene testing to gene editing, plus signposts for bees and an operatic gene of the month. Listen and download now at nakedscientist.com genetics. Still to come, the scientific way to rid your car of farts. And does deleting a file really mean it's gone? We talk data security. Up next, genetic sequencing. This is a technology that's come on leaps and bounds in recent years. It's now possible to sequence our entire genome in a matter of days, but could having access to our genetic data put us at risk of discrimination? Georgia Mills found out. Many people are aware of the nightmare scenario of the film Gattaca, the dystopian future in which your DNA dictates even the jobs you're allowed to get. But is this really something we should be worrying about? The EU currently bans genetic discrimination by employers, and in the UK, use of genetic tests by employers is restricted by the Equality Act. And in the USA, they currently have something called GINA. GINA is the Genetic Information Non-Discrimination Act, And what it does is it prevents the use of genetic information in either employment or health insurance. Ellen Wright-Clayton is a professor of paediatrics and law at Vanderbilt University Medical Center. Gina was created because there was a lot of fear in the United States that if people had genetic tests, that it was going to be used to prevent them from getting jobs, to prevent them from getting health insurance. So the law was passed in order to reassure them with the idea that getting genetic testing could, in fact, be beneficial for their health. Has it been useful? Has it been used? Well, Gina actually hasn't been used all that much, in part because it doesn't apply if you already have symptoms of a genetic disorder. So there was a study that was published in the New England Journal of Medicine that shows of the complaints to the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, a very small percentage of them even mentioned GINA, and even a smaller percentage actually relied on it. So why do we think this is? Is is it the fact that people aren't claiming, or is genetic discrimination just not really happening? Well, I think there's a lot of debate about whether genetic discrimination is happening. Um, There certainly is not a lot of evidence of it, although people talk about it a fair amount. I think the real reason we're not seeing claims is because we have other laws that actually do a more effective job of protecting individuals. Cases of genetic discrimination do seem few and far between, but they're not unheard of. In Australia, lawyers identified three cases of employees who had positive genetic tests for either Huntington's or Alzheimer's who were then either demoted or lost their job entirely. And in America, the rules may be about to change. One of the things that's happening in the United States right now is that there is a bill pending in our Congress that would allow um, 
employers that provide wellness programs to get certain amounts of genetic information um, from their employees and to penalize them if they don't provide it. And so what I would say there, this obviously undermines GINA, the ADA, and the Affordable Care Act to some extent. And what is a wellness program? A wellness program is uh, that employers can um, give you incentives to do things that help you to be more healthy. And so they can have programs where you provide medical information, you can have your blood pressure taken, you know, they can check your weight and height, uh, they can give you incentives if you engage in uh, in certain activities. So these are all things that were permitted under the Affordable Care Act under the notion that it would actually help people be healthier. But now it's being argued that alongside all these things like blood pressure, weight, height, you can you can be penalised if you don't hand over your genetic information, which I suppose that many people will feel very differently about. People will, are concerned that if employers have genetic information, they will use it in employment decisions, even though it's forbidden by GINA. Thinking a bit about genetic discrimination being made illegal in this sense. What if, for example, let's paint a scenario, someone had a gene that made them more likely to get ill, either mentally or physically, if they undertook shift work? Wouldn't genetic discrimination in that case be a very good idea because it's preventing them from entering a job that might be bad for their health? Well, I think the question that you raise here is how much choice individuals should have about the kinds of employment they take, the kinds of risks that they undergo. And so I think the challenge for thinking about the discrimination laws is deciding if there are choices that people shouldn't be allowed to make, if there are choices that people ought to be informed so they can make better decisions, or if the employer can simply decide um, paternalistically, that they just don't want that person in that position. So the fundamental question in discrimination law is who gets to pick. Okay. And because I suppose employers do discriminate on a whole bunch of things in uh, your intelligence, your your CV, um, your work ethic. So why should your genetics be different? I mean, I think that's a really interesting question because, of, of course, employers do discriminate on the basis of a variety of things. But the fundamental question always comes down to, are there some things that, as a society, we don't want to be used as the basis of discrimination? Genetic information is one, age is another, sex is another, race is another. And so even though all of those things actually might be quite pertinent to the employer, we just have made a social decision that that these kinds of factors can't enter into their decisions about who they employ and under what conditions. That was Ellen Wright Clayton from Vanderbilt University speaking to Georgia Mills, and that was recorded back in April 2017. The bill in question, HR 1313, still hasn't been passed, so we'll see what happens in 2018. So, Izzy, would you get your genome sequenced? Well, I did, actually. Me and former naked scientist Tom Crawford deposited some samples in the name of science. And as you're about to hear, it's not particularly glamorous. Fill the tube with saliva to the black wavy light. OK, no, you're right, actually. That is a lot of sal- That's like 20 mils, maybe, of saliva. That's, it's a lot of saliva, isn't it's it? It's a lot of saliva. Put a funnel on, give it a shake. OK, that's what the blue liquid is. 
It's a stabilizing fluid, as they call it, and then stick it in the collection bag. Should we get these open? Let's do it. Now that I'm supposed to be spitting, I've got a bit of a dry mouth. <laughs> oh, we're going to be here forever. <laughs> it's so difficult to spit when you're under pressure. <laughs> oh, I went everywhere. <laughs> I knew that was going to happen. Oh, that sounds disgusting, to be honest. <laughs> what were the results, though? I'm not telling you. You'll find out in an upcoming show. So from one not-so-glamorous topic to another, my Naked Scientist spring highlight was this listener question that made its way into May's Q&A show. Chris Smith put this stinker to Imperial College physicist Jess Wade. Now, Jess, we have to come back down to earth with a bump for you. Hello, Naked Scientists. My name's Karen, calling from Hollywood, California, and I got a pretty stinky question for you. How would you best remove flatulence from an automobile by opening a combination of windows and sunroof? Hey, thanks for your help. Take care. I thought, but Jess, never in your whole career did you think that you would be coming to reach this moment to apply the rules of physics and fluid dynamics to ventilate a car especially to be asked from california i think that's brilliant <laughs> so um there's obviously a few different issues here about how you get a fart out of a car and one of them is about which windows you choose to open the other one is how what kind of temperature the fart is at as disgusting as that sounds because that affects how quickly it expands when it comes out into the atmosphere and then the other one is which kind of gases are in the air already so um when when the fart occurs it it comes out it expands it moves forward to the kind of front of the car because that's a region of lower pressure if you're moving along because the higher pressure region is at the back why is that because the air is accelerating forward so it's pushing backwards increasing the pressure at the back. You're assuming the car is getting faster. I'm assuming here that so the car is moving So therefore the air is being forward. left behind a bit exactly. inside the car. So the fart's going to make it make its way towards the front. Towards so the driver the front is going to experience it more than the Exactly. Seat. Well, that's just made me realise the worst thing you can do when someone farts in the car is try and accelerate away from it. Yeah, so you should put the brakes on. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> it is Jen? the worst thing you can do. And if you're in the passenger seat and you're the one who's done the fart, it's going to be very obvious very quickly because it's going to go forward to the driver. And if you try and open the windows, which is what you'd probably try and do, there's interesting things that happen with kind of fluid flow. And you'd think if you were this little air particle in the car, you'd want to rush out, right? As soon as you get outside, you realise very quickly that the air there is not actually at the lower pressure that you assumed it was at. And it's much lower pressure inside the car. So the air there isn't moving with you. It's, it's, it's outside. So you rush back into the car. So the smell doesn't leave if you just open one of the windows, which right. I think Do is you need super to interesting. More than one window, then? So I think to get this fart out, Karen in California, you have to slightly open the front window and open the back window so that you create a kind of flow through the car. This really interesting, you can get really interesting graphics of it, of kind of turbulent flow going I'm through these a few two open windows. Right now, actually. And then, <laughs> I'm not going to make any judgment here. You could also get smart materials to make your car seats out of that actually absorb odours. So smart materials are materials that have a function when you do something to them. So materials like ones that you can jump up and down on and then they produce electricity, kind of piezoelectric materials. But you can also get clever ones that can trap the smells. So smells are usually kind of carbon-based molecules and you can get ones that get trapped in the fabric so you don't smell those at all. So that is one option. But the other option is obviously also doing this with the windows. Okay, so a front window open a bit, a back window open a bit, yeah. and that should achieve the right pressure differential to vent the fart. Entirely right. Jess, fartologist, thank you yeah. very much. Thanks for that, Imperial. Yeah. That training. So don't drive away from a fart. 
the naked scientists for all your science needs. Shall we move away from bodily functions? Uh, yes, please. 2017 saw a number of significant cyber attacks across the globe, including one on the National Health Service in the UK. One way to stay secure is to delete all personal data from old electronic devices, for example, if you're giving them away to someone else. But how confident can we be that deleting data means that it's gone? With the help of Graham Reimer from Cambridge University, I set out to discover what could be gleaned from an old formatted hard drive, and it's rather surprising. Hi Graham, how are you? I'm very good, thank you. Yeah, here are the hard drives. It's quite a collection. <laughs> yeah, there's a couple in there, so just see what you can find. The hard drive from a computer is usually the size of a paperback book. All of your files and any activity that you do on your computer is recorded there. Graham had about 24 hours to investigate. So what did you find? I can see loads of different files right in front of me. Actually, there was an element of triage because there was just so much data available. This chap was a keen photographer. Is that someone's wedding photos? It is. Oh, we've got hundreds of wedding photos. We have a trip to Paris here. Nice of the Eiffel Tower. This is the owner of the laptop himself on a skiing holiday. Not only did we have enough archive to track his life over a 10-year period, but lots of digital photographs have data embedded by the device. I can tell that it was taken at about 2.58pm back in 2009 on the 19th of February. A lot of devices now, including the ubiquitous iPhone as well as uh, most cameras, embed GPS data as well. So had this photograph been taken on a smartphone, we'd even be able to tell what mountain the previous owner was standing on. Date, time and location. But whilst it's unnerving, there's only so much damage that can be caused knowing this information. What else were you able to find? We have invoices. I expect the the, the most compromising piece of information that we have is uh, this chap's driving licence. So that's actually got his address on there, his date of birth. His signature. Oh, and his signature, yep. So say he had thought he had deleted his hard drive, Uh which is effectively what he thinks he's done. What could happen if this got into the wrong hands? Oh, it's uh, it's, it's a limitless... uh, (laughs) Obviously, there's potential for identity fraud. There will be files with passwords saved in them, perhaps online banking credentials. Anything which you think is safe on your computer that's not encrypted is not safe in in this context. So anything that he's left lying about on his computer, which could be exploited by an attacker for financial gain, perhaps, is fair game. Encryption is a modern form of cryptography that allows a user to hide information from others. It uses a complex algorithm which turns your data into a series of seemingly random characters. That means it's unreadable by those without a special key or password, which will then unscramble and decrypt your data. But this hard drive wasn't encrypted. We were able to find out the previous owner's signature, home address and his bank details thanks to that saved invoice. But can a hard drive reveal even more about an owner? So your internet history is just a computer file. It's a little bit trickier and, and time-consuming to extract that sort of information, but anything that existed on, on his computer uh, before it was formatted is potentially uh, discoverable. Whilst it takes longer to find, this means we would be able to access his email account, his contacts, and even passwords to various online accounts, potentially bank account included.
Obviously, we're, we're based here at the Computer Laboratory in Cambridge. You must have access to so many different techniques and so many utensils. How have you been actually able to retrieve this information? Uh, well, uh, utensil-wise, we, we used a, an old wooden spoon, really. <laughs> uh, this is um, free open-source software, which we used. Normally, that hard drive would be plugged into a computer, so that's exactly what I did. I just got a garden variety desktop PC. I took the side off it. I found a spare cable. I was able to uh, read the data straight off that drive very easily. Any attacker with uh, with half an hour of, of Googling could uh, could learn the same techniques which we've used here. Very, very simple technology. That's quite terrifying. Effectively, what we've learned is that by clicking that delete button, your files aren't actually removed from the hard drive. Absolutely not. It's like having a, a book and just ripping out the contents page. If you still want to read the book, everything's there. Uh, you just can't jump to the, to the interesting bit straight away. If you want to rifle through it page by page, uh, you can still find all the information. And, and that's exactly what the, these fast uh, deleting and formatting techniques do. How do we actually properly delete our data from a hard drive? Luckily, we've come across it, but in the wrong hands, that could be quite problematic. The only way to defend against this is to overwrite every single part of the disk. Going back to that analogy, that would be the same as going through your book quite painstakingly over many, many hours and tipexing over every single letter in the book. Obviously, people don't like to do this routinely because it takes quite a long, long time, but it's something that you might consider doing before you go to sell a laptop. Another defense, which is much, much faster and better for, for several reasons, is to use encryption. So both OS X uh, has had FileVault since the Lion version. Since Windows Vista, we've had BitLocker uh, included. Both these programs allow you to encrypt volumes on your hard drive. And that means that if you ever leave your laptop on a, on a train, if you have your laptop stolen, all that data is useless because it's just garbled junk uh, on the disk. Uh, you don't have to worry about overwriting the disk afterwards because it's already junk. Without the password to decrypt it, it's, it's, it's quite useless to an attacker. So I would recommend people seriously consider looking into the, the encryption options available. This doesn't have to be a software option. Lots of modern hard drives, especially solid state drives in, in business class laptops, uh, support encryption as well. That was Graham Reimer there from the Computer Laboratory at Cambridge University. So pressing delete then isn't actually the same thing as getting rid of your files? No, certainly not. So the best two ways of making sure your files can't be accessed by someone else are, number one, overwriting every part of your hard drive before you sell it, which actually can take some time, or number two, using encryption. And for more information, take a listen to the full interview with Graham on our website, thenakedscientist.com, and the episode is called Cybersecurity When Crime Goes Online. The Naked Scientists podcast is produced in association with Spitfire. Cost-effective voice, internet and IP engineering services for UK businesses. Find out how Spitfire can empower your company at spitfire.co.uk. For this special New Year's edition of the programme, we're looking back on our favourite science moments of 2017. On the way, foraging for fungi and false memories. Stay tuned. In July, we headed to the water for a month of marine programmes, starting at the beach and finishing at the bottom of the ocean. Our regular question of the week slot got rather hijacked by a critter or two, and out of the worthy contenders, the hermit crab, the anglerfish and the sea anemone, there could be only one rather deadly winner. Name, Irukandji jellyfish, phylum, Nidaria, 
Location. These jellyfish exist in oceans across the world. Special abilities. The power of invisibility with a silent but deadly sting. Lisa Ann Gershwin, director of the Australian Marine Stinger Advisory Services, makes the case for this week's Critter of the Week. You may see them most as pathetic globules of white washed up on the beach, but jellyfish pack a punch. One that you really don't want to mess with is the Irukandji jellyfish. These jellies cause a debilitating illness known as Irukandji syndrome, named after an Australian Aboriginal tribe. Imagine a tiny, thimble-shaped creature, smaller than a miniature marshmallow and invisible in water. In life, it has four tentacles as fine as cobwebs and a hundred times its body length. Cute factor? Check. Homegrown invisibility cloak? Check. But don't be fooled. There's a catch. Its sting is worse than anything Hollywood has dared to imagine. Make no mistake, this tiny beast is a killer. The sting itself is often painless and leaves no mark. Half of the victims don't even know they've been stung. The Irukandji can fire their stingers into their victim. And unlike most jellyfish, you'll also find stingers on the Irukandji's bell. After about half an hour, severe lower back pain begins, with patients often describing it as feeling like an electric drill drilling into the back. Within minutes, relentless nausea and vomiting begin and can persist for 12 hours. A short time later, the rest of the syndrome kicks in, including difficulty breathing, sweating, full body cramps and spasms, restless legs, and a feeling of impending doom. And if you think that sounds bad, get a load of this. Some species also cause severe hypertension or high blood pressure, severe enough to hemorrhage the brain or cause heart failure. There's no antivenom, but intriguingly, intravenous magnesium stops the whole syndrome in its tracks in many cases. So it's tiny, invisible and extremely venomous. Um, where can I avoid this cool but cruel critter? Even though most people have never heard of Irukandji syndrome, species that cause it are found in all the world's oceans, from Hawaii to Boston to the Caribbean, from Southeast Asia to the South Pacific Islands. So why do I think Irukandjis are the best critters? Because anything so small, so invisible, so mysterious, and so dangerous certainly gets my respect. There you have it, ladies and gentlemen. They're ever so small and oh so dangerous Irukandji jellyfish. I might just stick to a walk in the park rather than a dip in the ocean. And in August, I did just that. On the hunt for my lunch, I took a stroll with lifelong hobbyist forager Anthony Baggett to see what tasty morsels the green spaces of Cambridge had to offer. We've come back from the road a bit and it's actually really quiet and peaceful. And you're going to show us a few items that you can pick in August. Is that right? Sure. Um, actually, just as we enter the cemetery, we've got Ooh. some berries here now, two types. So there's some elderberries up top and some blackberries down below. Oh, wow. That one's really sour. Yeah. <laughs> These are a bit small and they're a little bit sour. <laughs> yeah, wow. So hawthorn is one that I've always known from a kid. And people call it bread and cheese. The leaves are like the bread and the fruit is like the cheese. So you can make a hawthorn sandwich? Exactly, yeah. <laughs> mm. Go on then. Give it a go. I'm not feeling brave enough. Mmm. Tasty. <laughs> Does it taste anything like bread? 
It doesn't taste anything like red. Actually, it has a little bit of an apple flavour. We've had a, a bad experience in the past with an orange birch belete, which is a, a type of mushroom that grows under the birch tree. We picked it, um, cooked it for about three to four minutes, I'd say, because that's what, how we cook our, our mushrooms from the supermarket. Within about five minutes, he was throwing up on the, on, on the beach they were on. Oh, goodness. You really have to know your stuff when foraging, don't you? Yes, you certainly do. With fungi in particular. Luckily, Anthony's friend was fine, but make sure you know your stuff before picking. Better still, take an expert with you. And if you want to listen to more of my foraging adventure and get a few do's and don'ts, search for our diet show on the website or wherever you get your podcasts. Summer walks in the park soon turned into autumn strolls and here at The Naked Scientist we took a walk down memory lane. Now how would you feel if you sent an innocent person off to prison? Or what if you confessed to a crime that never actually happened? The way in which police question individuals can lead to the creation of so-called false memories and these can result in wrong convictions from time to time. I spoke to crime psychologist Julia Shaw from UCL. False memories are generally fabricated when we confuse something we just imagined with something that we actually experienced. So we think that we went to a party with a friend when really we we did go to the party maybe, but the friend wasn't there. So we've introduced a person into a setting that they weren't actually in or... In the stuff that I study, we maybe think we committed a crime that never happened. It's a process whereby the brain essentially gets confused and often takes pieces that exist of real memories. So what a real person looks like, what a real situation is like, what a real space is like, it just and just puts those pieces together in a way that never actually happened. Thinking that your friend was at a party with you when they weren't, compared to admitting or thinking that you did a crime, quite a big difference between them. What did your recent study set out to find? Whether we can get people to falsely confess to crimes that never happened and actually internalize that false confession. So to think that they actually committed this crime. So an assault, an assault with a weapon or a theft, all with police contact. So I didn't just want to do it for fun. I wanted to do it to show, look, this might actually be really easy to do in a relatively benign interview situation. If you've got someone on the stand and the evidence is poor and all you're relying on is their memory, you have to be careful. How did you actually have people believing that they committed a crime? I contacted their parents ahead of time. So these were university students, and they knew that I'd contacted their parents. And I asked the parents about events that happened when the participants were teenagers. And then I asked the participants to come in. They knew it was an emotional memory study. And we sat down, and I said, okay, so your parents reported this thing happening. And and it was a real event. And so the participant would start saying, yeah, okay, I remember that. And so we'd go through the what's called the cognitive interview, which is currently best practices for policing. And I'd I'd go through, you know, tell me everything you can remember about the events from start to finish, and then probing questions. So you'd mentioned X, tell me more about that. Over 20 minutes, they'd build up the sense of, ooh, she knows something about my life, and we're getting somewhere. We're building rapport. I'm building trust. If the person doesn't trust that you know more about their lives than they do, then it's not going to work. And then what did you do? Then I introduced a second memory, and this was the false memory. So I said, okay, when you were 14 years old, your parents said that you assaulted someone with a weapon and the police called your parents, which is allegedly how they found out. Uh, You were with your best friend, and I inserted the name of the best friend, and you were in, and then I inserted the name of the hometown. So those two bits of reality added a lot of credibility as well. So the pieces about the location and the friend, true. 
true, true from that age. And these are easy things to picture. And so from that point on, what I got, had them do is, of course, they said, I don't know what you're talking about, which, which is understandable because it didn't happen. And then I said, well, you know, would, would you like to try the illusion of choice? Uh, would you like to try this uh, exercise, which works for most people if they try hard enough? Close your eyes and picture yourself at the age of 14. You're with your friend so-and-so. Where are you? What's, you know, where did this happen? And, and it, it's building up what did it feel like to be there? What, you know, what, why did you engage in this fight? What happened when the police came? And so building up these imagined pieces, but you can see they're starting to buy into it. Uh, and then after three weeks, the way that I classified the memory, 70% had full false memory. So they confessed to these crimes that never happened and told me why it happened and what happened and, and multisensory details. Can you give me an example sort of what crimes are we talking about? The idea of a weapon sounds quite serious. So a weapon wasn't a semi-automatic rifle, it was a rock. And one girl was saying how she had a rock in her hand and she was attacking a, a love rival and she'd, she'd gone at her and thrown this really big rock and every time she was sitting there during these interviews that happened three times, the rock got bigger. And so she was reenacting in front of me this crime that never happened. It, it totally varied, but it had to fit within their life story. In the real world, you can't undo that process. If you start asking leading or suggestive questions or you start doing imagination exercises where people confuse reality or experienced events with just imagined ones, it's hard to get rid of those. And they can be really compelling. And you can sit as a witness on, on the stand or you can be accused of a crime on the stand and you can be saying all these memory details of this thing that you think happened that, that is untrue. And you end up sending innocent people to, to, to jail. What can we do to prevent that situation? What I want people to know is to know these things exist, first and foremost. So know that a false memory is a thing that can happen. And in some ways, trust your own lack of memory. So as far as we know, there's no brain that is resistant to false memories. But also the justice system needs to know about it. So I train military and police, and I go and ed I educate them on the science of memory. And I say, you know, you guys really need to watch out with some of these interview tactics, especially, for example, in the, in the States, they use fake evidence. We found your fingerprints at the scene. That's incredibly compelling. It's about making sure that they're proactively working against the creation of false memories because once they're there, they can be impossible to undo. Julia Shaw from UCL. Now, if there's something strange in your neighbourhood, who are you going to call? The Naked Scientist team, of course. As Halloween lanterns came out and the costumes came on, we wanted to find out about the psychology of paranormal beliefs. The bravest of us, <clears throat> so not me, volunteered one dark and eerie night to creep around the supposedly haunted Maddingley Hall in Cambridgeshire on a mission to find out what might be lurking there. So we are on the approach to Maddingley Hall now. The sun is down, there are crows flying around and um, it's looking very impressive and ever so slightly spooky. Um, so we're going to see if we're going to find any ghosts. How are my fellow naked scientists feeling? Quite excited, but I feel like as soon as I get into a room and there's a suspicious bump, I'll be out of there. <laughs> I'm a sceptical scientist, but I keep having to tell myself I'm a sceptical scientist. Here is our ghost hunter. I have a ghost for you. Hi, Hi Brad, okay? nice to meet nice you. To meet you. Hi, How are yeah, you doing? Right. Nice to meet you, Brad. 
Yeah, so we're getting out the EMF detector. This one will just detect any electromagnetic interferences in the atmosphere. Yeah, so this is a zero. So, for instance, if you go near something electronical, it should go up. Oh, yep, yep. So this part here, the top bit of the big antenna, this creates an electromagnetic field in itself. Mm -hmm. So if anything interrupts that, anything physical, and that happens quite a lot, it's quite common for that to happen, which is freaky, especially when you've got it out here. So what exactly is it measuring? Electromagnetic frequencies, which is which are what ghosts are meant to be made up of. Oh, right. But so also equally good. any electrical equipment. I mean, when I'm pu putting my recorder next to it, it's yeah. going a bit crazy. Um, and also people. Let's have a yeah. crack at this later on when it gets a bit darker, right? Oh, okay. Then we've got your thermal camera, which picks up temperature, obviously. Temperature, yeah. So this one's my favourite one. I'll get the speakers out for full effect. Yeah, so this scans through radio frequencies. You can make it scan through forwards, make it scan through backwards. You can make it scan through fast, slow. So spirits are meant to be able to communicate through these frequencies, and we can hear that through this little beautiful machine, the SB11 spirit box. And equally, if there's any sort of, if it taps into any radio stations nearby, we'll hear that as well. Yeah. <laughs> so the light just turned on. <laughs> so we're standing here in the dog hole. And there was a really quite loud crack, and then the light flickered. Is it a nice box? Yeah. Mystery solved. Yeah. <laughs> I like how I said I was a logical person, and as soon as there's one little creak, I'm like, it's a ghost. Okay, so we're going now into the turret. Oh my gosh. So we're entering a staircase that is wooden and extremely cold. I mean, that in itself isn't spooky because um, it's kind of external. Is anybody here? Lady Ursula, are you here? So the temperature's dropping. Was that somebody there? If that was somebody manipulating this little piece of machinery in my hand... Is that a bomb? Is that coming from above what? Yeah. Oh, was that not you? No, no, it's no. coming from... That sounded like that was coming from... It's coming from inside the storage room, I think. What? Oh, I don't like that. Is that just bad? No. I'm going to say that there's lots of things going on with the interference, shouting out building up tension you kind of want to believe something was there and that's why i felt a bit scared <laughs> keep the flashlight off oh what are you kidding i've been told that to get the full experience i should be in this room where we've had a couple of bumps already on my own and ask a couple of questions steady temperature drop again look oh i guess it could be a draft so you want to watch I'm watching for temperature changes and electromagnetic influxes. influxes. Lady Ursula, let's drop right down to the tuna. Can we leave the door open? No. Nope. Oh, I'm going to lose my mind immediately. Okay. Once in a lifetime. Yeah, okay, I can do it, I can do it. Okay. So I'm on my own in the room, the door is shut, the lights are off, and I'm going to be interviewing a ghost. So if you're here, ghost, uh, could you do something to the EMF reader, please? Um, it would make some excellent radio if we were to discover ghosts live on air. Nothing on the EMF reader so far.
feeling a little bit cold, but it is a it is a room with a chimney in it and two windows. And the EMF reader is remaining silent. So, so no ghosts at Maddingley Hall. Georgia Mills, Michael Wheeler and Izzy were there with ghost hunter Brad Mack from Ghost Hunt UK. But Izzy, be honest, was it actually scary? Yeah, I'm quite a scaredy cat actually. So it was really dark, it was really cold, there were these suspicious bumps. But since then, I've had to tell myself there's a logical reason to all these things going on. So I think I'm less of a scaredy cat now. And from ghosts to skeletons now, on a recent question and answer show here on The Naked Scientists, Chris Smith spoke to human origins expert Lee Berger from Wits University in Johannesburg about his recent Homo naledi discovery at the Rising Star Cave. He even brought skulls, hands and feet with him. You've got some guest interviewees on the table in front of us. There are two skulls either side of you, Lee, there. One's an old friend, of course. One is the actual type specimen of Homo naledi from the Dinaledi chamber. This is the one that we announced uh, almost three years ago, I guess. And we didn't know how old they were at the time, but it was the most complete uh, skull that we had. Uh, Interestingly, if you're looking at this skull to describe it, it's a brown skull, but the white part in the front is the nose area we didn't have. These are some of the most fragile bones in the body and they did not preserve in those early specimens that we were pulling out. So we kind of guessed at it. The rest of it all fit together, but we had to kind of guess at what the central face would look like. So we actually put a nose on there based on the way the face was angling down and also the very advanced features we're seeing in some of the back parts of the skull. And I'm really pleased to say that we discovered a skull in another chamber, the Lissetti chamber, and we announced it about four months ago. This is the uh, same cave system. It's another chamber off of where uh, you yeah, discovered these about specimens. About 110 metres away, again, 40 metres deep, very inaccessible. We found a skeleton there that had a complete skull. Uh, this is the skull in AO. I'm holding that one now in front of us. And I'm pleased to say, after all that work, we got the face wrong in the original <laughs> reconstructions. It's very clear when you see Nao's nose that it's much flatter. And when I hold them up together, you can see the difference in the reconstructions. You hedged your bet a bit when you guessed because you gave him a much more prominent nose, more towards what we would regard as humanish. Uh, or a homo erectus yep. kind yep. of thing. And that was being led by some of the shape of the skull. It's clear, though, that homo naledi, Neo's skull and face uh, is much flatter, much more primitive. To Just to describe this for, for people at home, the, the actual skull vault is about fi- a bit bigger than fist size, yeah. I'd say. So this would have been quite a small-headed individual. When would these have been running around on Earth? When I was on your show last, we said, well, they must be millions of years old. Every scientist was trying to guess at how old Homo naledi was based on the anatomy of the heads of the body. There were several papers published saying it was a million and a half, two million, maybe two and a half million years old. We now know that this population of Homo naledi in the Dinaledi chamber is actually around 250,000 years old, between about 180,000 and about three. 140,000 with a central point around 250,000 years. That is really young. It's really kind of put a landmine in the middle of archaeology and paleoanthropology because that sort of primitive ancient human relative should not have been alive at that point according to what we'd been finding. Megan was talking about the ancient Egyptians burying their dead. That's the striking thing about these individuals, isn't it? You found this in a cave system where really the only way they could have got those bodies into that cave system 
is that they took them there? Our very controversial hypothesis that we put forward about three years ago was that the Dinaletti chamber was a deliberate body disposal site. That They came down this amazingly narrow chute entrance. It has uh, enclosures 17 and a half centimeters wide, say seven and a half inches wide, down 12 meters, which is 50 feet or so. And so we, we did hypothesize that uh, they were deliberately disposing of the dead. That's not been disproved. Uh, it still sits as the most valid hypothesis. We now have, of course, not just one more chamber, the Lissetti chamber. We found another chamber. I just came out from underground uh, about four weeks ago. Now, it's one thing when we talk about Egypt or other places and deliberate body disposal like that, but not with this brain. It's just very hard to fathom that they had that complexity, yet we're faced with it is what it is. They're very small-brained, aren't they? If one looks at the inside of the skull, you can get some idea as to what bits of the brain might have been doing what and what the behaviour of an animal may have been because it tells you about the size of the underlying brain. So if you look at these specimens, what what does the brain look like? Well, in fact, that paper's just about to come oh, out. Oh, damn. And, no, it's okay. I'll, oh, tell, it's I'll, I'll go ahead and break it. for the naked I'll, scientist. I'll, there, I'll give on. you the exclusive. It's very complex. Our scientist who's been studying uh, our image of the brain that's pounded out on the inside of the skull all his life said, it's finally the brain I've been looking for my entire life because it's very advanced. It's very complex, but it's tiny. Did they have language? If you uh, look, is there a swelling on the left-hand side roughly is, where the it, language it, center in, might be? Were they talking to each other? Broca's area is enlarged in this. There's bilateral asymmetry. We don't know if they had language. I can tell you, though, if we are right about this sort of very complex behavior, it'd be very surprised if they did not have a language or a communication much more complex complex than any animal communication we know of. And that was our very own Chris Smith there talking to Lee Berger from Wits University in South Africa. And that's it. We hope you enjoyed our look back at the science of 2017. Stay with us in 2018 for another year stuffed with science. We'll bring you more news stories, breakthroughs and interviews with leading scientists. Until then, I'll be bedding down with a few box sets. And I'll probably be making pasta and cocktails. So whatever you're up to, Happy New Year! (laughs) It's quite nice, actually. Oh, yeah. From a posh supermarket, that's (laughs) why. Shame it's not wine. The Naked Scientist comes to you from Cambridge University and is supported by the STFC, the EPSRC and Rolls-Royce. I'm Katie Haler, and thank you for listening. (laughs) 